Amen. Go ahead and take a seat, please. And if you would, open your Bible to Matthew 1. That's where we were last week. And it's where we'll continue this week. Matthew 1, 18 is where we'll be. Um, and as you turn there, the Gospel of Matthew, as we have been singing about intentionally uh, for this moment, to prepare our hearts for this, proclaims that Jesus is the king. He is the king who was promised. Jesus is the king who has come. He is a different kind of king than a political king to conquer Rome, but he has come to conquer the very sin that exists in our heart, the devil himself, and the greatest enemy of all, death. And so when we pray, we know we are praying to a king who has conquered so much more. And if you were with us last week, we looked at uh, the untidy, that's a nice way to say it, the untidy family tree of this king that is full of uh, felons, prostitutes, rebels, sinners. And yet you see in that family tree, all of those names which are like beads strung together on the scarlet thread of redemption that goes from Genesis all the way to this moment, uh, you see that Christ is the Redeemer who has come to seek and save that which was lost. And so he is the promised one who has come. So that's what we've said so far. Here's what I know as we get started. There is an incredible problem that I have, and I want to confront it right here at the beginning. The problem I have, and it's a problem that you have too, so it's not just me, is that as we're in the Christmas season, uh, what we're looking at this morning is quite familiar. Do you know how difficult it is to preach on something that everybody already knows about? Okay? And how difficult is it for us to hear something fresh and let it hit us like it hit us for the first time? And as I was thinking about that this week, as we're going to look at the reality that Christ has come as a, as a baby, born in a manger, and all of that, it hit me, what is it that makes this new every single time, or ought to? And it's really one word. It's the word grace. Because last time I checked, I am still a sinner, and I sin every day. And if you're not sure whether you're a sinner, just ask the person that you live with, okay? You would know this is true. We all know it. We all are sinners. And so because we sin constantly, we're in need in forgiveness. And so what I know is that if you're a sinner, it should never get old hearing about God's grace and how it was accomplished for you. And so as we proceed, I ask you, don't, don't just humor me because I'm the new guy. Don't humor me just because it's our first go around together with Christmas. But I would ask you to consider as we look at the story of Joseph, Mary, the angel, and the baby, and the prophecy, that you would understand the purpose of a sermon. If you've ever heard of S.M. Lockridge, anybody ever heard that name, S.M. Lockridge? He was one of the, the well-known, famous Baptist ministers of the 20th century. Um, he's probably most well-known for a sermon he gave called, That's My King. Um, I would be willing to bet, if you don't know that name, you probably have heard parts of that sermon. But in the beginning of that sermon, I was telling someone this um, early 
er this week that um, this is what he says the purpose of a sermon is. And they said, we gotta share this. And he says, a sermon should do at least three things. One, it ought to inform your mind. You ought to learn something, Lord willing, okay? Secondly, it ought to warm your heart. It ought to stir you up with a passion to live for Christ. And the third one, he said it, not me. I like this one the most. The third one, if it informs your mind, warms your heart, the third thing it ought to do is tan your hide, which I thought was, which I thought was good. And so let us proceed with this familiar story as we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, as we ask God's word to stir our hearts, and then lastly to challenge us. Let's look at a familiar story and trust in that God's all-sufficient word is capable even yet again today. Let me pray for us and let's get, let's get to work. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that through your word we see the how of how grace was accomplished. Humbly, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the God-man for us, who is God with us. Lord, show us that reality and let it be more true for us today as we walk out than it was when we came in. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So if Matthew has been defending the thesis up until this point that Jesus really is the king, he's going to show us something more now. He's defended to the point that Jesus is the king from the line of David. He really is the anointed one. And now he's going to show us how this king arrived on the scene. Now, um, when presidential inaugurations happen or... Someone gets married, as we've, we looked at just a, a little while ago in our missions moments, or you have graduations even, um, usually the stops are pulled out and you spare no expense, and it's a celebration of what's happened. And I decided as I was thinking about significant life markers that people have in their lives, I thought about how much does it cost? And so I did the work for you. Um, it, whenever the president is sworn in at the presidential inauguration, do you know how much it costs for that to happen? Um, would you say $1 million? Would you say $5 million? $10? 20 what, what would you say? I looked it up, and here was the number. And you should know this. It's, it's, it do, there's not a huge discrepancy whether it's your red or blue, re Republican or Democrat. It is 175 to 200 million dollars that is raised between um, uh, private, well, I should say raised, that's raised privately in combination with your taxpayer dollars. Feel great about that. 175 million, 200 million. Okay, I thought about weddings. How much does it cost on average as of last year to get married in the United States? How much does the average wedding cost? You put a number on it. Think about what your wedding cost whether it was recently or a long time ago, here's what it costs as of 2021. $28,000 for one day. That, that for me was a, a year of college tuition. And that was really expensive at the time. And, and as a parent of uh, little boys, I quantify everything in terms of diapers. And I'm thinking, you know how many diapers that is? You know how, how much that can make my kids survive for a few years? That's the way my mind is. And what that also means is that the next time you see Jeremy or Lorena, who have had three kids by the end of this year get married, give them a hug because you know they're broke. That's what that means, okay? <laughs> and while we're just in this rabbit hole, let's just keep going here. Um, uh, this one's just for fun. Do you know how much it costs to raise a child in the United States? It, it costs, on average, 
per year, $17,000 for a total of $310,000. It's a house every time I look at my two cute little sons, every single time, $310,000, it's incredible. But bringing it back to the point, you look at these major events and you see how we have the potential to really go all out and celebrate these moments. If I were to ask you the question, how much would you spend for the arrival of a king, let alone a divine king, what would you spend? Someone might say, well, I heard the sermon about money a few weeks ago, 10%. Um, or maybe somebody else will go, well, we did 200 million for, for the president, it's gotta be something more than that. What would you do? If it was for me, I know I, I could imagine all the expenses I would want spent on me if I was God. And the Lord has been reminding me again this week that I am not him. And so, here's what Matthew tells us though, and how God himself arrives on the scene. Let me read verse 18, he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Here's how it actually happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. It's like the exact opposite of what you would expect, right? It's the exact opposite. It's like a joke. It's embarrassing almost. And there's this word that's used called betrothed. And maybe in your Bible you'll have betrothed or you might have um, engaged or the word pledged. I think the word pledged really, really captures that and helps us understand what's happening here. When I say engaged, what do we tend to think of in our modern culture? We think of that period between dating and marriage where a couple has pledged to get married together and they're getting ready for that wedding. It's that in-between period. And by the way, if you're looking for, um, looking for a book, on, um, on navigating the single, uh, this, this stage of life from godly singleness to marriage. If that's the course you feel like the Lord's calling you to go on, there's a book called, literally called Single, Dating, Engaged, Married by Ben Stewart. And I, I mentioned that book in case uh, mom, dad, grandma, grandfather, if you would like to get your child or grandchild a passive aggressive uh, gift for the holidays, this would be a, a good gift for that. But the word betrothed here, the way it's used in scripture is, is more stronger than our understanding of engagement. There's a sense that comes with it that, that you were in a sense already married, it just the marriage hadn't been consummated yet. And so what would have happened in Mary and Joseph's day is that the husband would have gone away to get the, uh, to get the, uh, the fa- where the family would be, the home ready. And so the wife would wait, and then in that year, that process would happen, but in that year, they would have been considered in a more stronger sense than the way you and I understand engagement, married. So that to get out of it would have been akin to divorce. And you'll see in a moment, that's exactly the issue that comes up. And so we're told before they came together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, the extraordinary, the unexpected, the what's not in the script thing happens, and she's pregnant during the betrothal period when they're supposed to be getting their family life, their future together. And if in a modern version, I could use it like this. You imagine that, that you've just got engaged. You're calling up the photographer, getting quotes. You're looking at what estimates might be for the venue where you'll have the marriage take place. You're thinking about sending out wedding invitations and your bride-to-be or you find out as the bride that you're pregnant. What do you do if you're in that circumstance? What do you do? 
Well, here's what Joseph, here's what Joseph does. Matthew says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, why does he do this? He does this because he knows that two plus two equals four, and this dude knows how babies are made. And when he puts everything on the table, there's only one card, and it says adultery on it. And he says, that's what happened, so I know what I must do. Divorce is the only thing that is left to happen. And this is an interesting piece of information that I found as I was looking at this passage this week as someone who was familiar with the story. Perhaps you've heard the story go like this. Joseph, because he was a good Jew, knew what he could have done to punish Mary. And because of what's said in Deuteronomy 22, in the Torah, as a Jew, he would have known that that passage says that if a virgin, when she comes to get married, is not actually a virgin, you can actually um, incite capital punishment upon her. And so you may have heard the story go like that, 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 and essentially, Joseph really could have brought the hammer down on Mary. That's actually not true. That's actually, that, that actually could not have happened. And you go, well, why could that not have happened? And, and the reason is the same reason the Jews could not have killed off Jesus 33 years later. Why could the Jews not do that? Because they were underneath the captivity of Rome. And Jewish people could not incite capital punishment on people. They had to get permission from Rome first. And so what Joseph could have done is he could have had a public trial he could have shamed Mary that way. And he would have been in, within, according to the culture of his day, within his right to do that. But he decides not to do that. He decides to have compassion instead. You put yourself in this man's shoes and you think about how embarrassing and humiliating this is. This was not the way when you were a third grader thinking about how you were gonna have the, 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 your life uh, with your wife in the nice house and the white picket fence. You, that's not gonna happen all of a sudden. You see that happening. And it just reminds us of who God is, that sometimes God has other plans for us than the cookie-cutter version of how we thought life would go for us. And that's beginning to unravel in Joseph's life. You listen to what happens Next, though, here's what happens next. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him, appears to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, stop, look at me. Do you see what Matthew's doing by pointing out son of David? Just as a little note here, he's pointing out the fact once again, David, Jesus comes from the line of David and his father is a son of David. He's reminding you once again, he says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel says, look, I want you to know that I know that two plus two equals four, and I also know how babies are made, but not this time. It's different this time. And so he's saying, you have a virgin mother in Mary. And you think about how nonsensical that sounds. It's so familiar to you and I, but that's like saying someone is a married bachelor. It's a nonsensical uh, way to put it. It's a contradiction of terms. So if that's not enough to wrap your mind around, it's an angel that's appearing to Joseph. And he says, do not fear. The angel says this. 
Now, I know I have mentioned, probably, I would say probably about a couple months ago, we were talking about euphemisms that people use when people die. And I remember there was a lady in the church that I was working at, another, another church I was at before serving here, and her daughter was sick, and at a certain point, she, she posted online that her daughter had gotten her wings. You ever heard that phraseology? She got her wings. And I never heard that before, and I thought, what does she mean? What does she mean? Her daughter got her wings. And then I realized, oh, her understanding is that when her daughter passed away, um, that when she died, she went to heaven, she became an angel. Now, since we're talking about angels here, and since there's an angel in this passage, I think it's the right moment. I may have to, I love you, I may have to burst someone's bubble here this morning. I want you to know that Scripture doesn't say that. Here's what Scripture actually says. You would be surprised that if you've never read the Bible, much of what you may believe about angels actually doesn't, it's not in the scriptures. It doesn't come from scriptures, but it actually may be informed by, by early church or medieval Catholic theology or may come from simply uh, media that you take in in the modern period. And so who are angels actually? You get some people, they've tried to make a hierarchy of angels, seraphim and cherubim and the archangels, all different words that are used. And the scripture just doesn't give us that. I like the way Miller Erickson Systematic theologian puts it this way. He says, angels, according to scripture, are superhuman, but not divine beings who work within human history. So they're not divine, they're not God, they're created by God, but they're not like you and I, right? They're, they're not human, they're, they're not bound to the physical, but they operate on God's timetable. In fact, we know that they're not divine because there's times when you read the book of Revelation, for example. What happens when John sees the angel? What does he do? Falls down, begins to worship. And then you'll see times like that that'll happen in scripture. And what does the angel say? Don't do that, get up, uh, I'm, I'm not God, right, essentially. You worship him alone. And so they are superhuman, they appear and disappear. They're not confined to the physical the way we are. Mysterious. There's all sorts of examples, I don't have time, I have a list here that I could give off. But the main point is to say, they are agents of God's will. Those who are obedient to the Lord, messengers and servants of the Lord. You have the angel of the Lord, you see that in the Old Testament. And those who are disobedient along with, with Satan, uh, we're told you get some passages, like in Jude, you get it in First Peter, and elsewhere, Jesus talks about how he saw Satan fall like lightning. And you have fallen angels who are either bound or you have those who do the work of the devil, and yet the devil is God's devil, and God has con control over the angels, over those which are dark uh, and have fallen, and God is in control over all of it, and yet he leads this angel in this situation to give Joseph two commands. What are they? First, to marry, Mary. Take Mary and make her your wife, and then the second is that you are to name this child Jesus. If you were with us last week, this word Jesus, the name Jesus, Jesus Christ, we made clear, and I hope to remind us, want to remind us once again, Jesus Christ, that's not his first name and that's not his last name. Jesus is his name and the Christ is his title. Christ is the title of being the king, the anointed one, the one who was sent. And yet Jesus comes from the Old Testament word Yahshua or Joshua, taken over into the Greek meaning Jesus, 
Yahweh, God, with us. He has come on this mission to save his people from their sins. This is who Jesus is. Back in January, um, our life was very full. And uh, Justine was, um, was giving birth to our son, Samuel, uh, our second born. And he was born on the 19th of this year. And uh, Justine's pregnancy with August, he was a little bit more tough on her than Samuel. It was, very, it was much easier by comparison. And when Samuel came, came out, I was there. And one of the requests that I had made was, you mind if I cut that umbilical cord? And so Justine did all the hard work, and then I stepped in in that moment to do my, you know, big duty, my, my big job, right? And so I go there, I take those these big scissors, and I go to cut the umbilical cord, and I remember this little guy just, just had come into the world. He, he grabs my hand like, like, a, like, a, like a man grasps. He's like, you will not separate me from my mama. He's like, you will not let that happen. And he grabs me, and I have to take his hand off, and... You know, and you cut the umbilical cord and, and uh, you take the child and put him on his mother so that they can get skin-to-skin contact. And in that moment, there's just a quietness. Like there's so much happening around us, but there's a quietness because it's precious. Precious little life. Right after that, maybe I'll show you sometime. My mother and father were there, but because of code regulations, we actually have a funny picture where we have, my, uh, we have the three of us Samuel and Justine and I, and we're showing uh, Samuel to my parents who had figured out how to get out, which room we were in, and they were outside of the hospital, and there was, there was a window, and we could see the picture of all of us together. But you know what happened in that moment? Uh, it never once crossed my mind to think about how Samuel's little life would end one day. Like when a new life happens like that, you're thinking about his future, you're thinking about everything that will take place. You're th- only thinking about the life that he will have. And as I've been thinking about Christmas, y'all, I just want to say, I think this is part of the reason why we miss the purpose of Christmas, why it's so difficult for many of us to wrap around, wrap around our head, why this moment is so significant. If you only f- think about sweet baby Jesus in the manger, if you're only thinking about shepherds walking over their flock by night, and you don't connect this little life that Mary has in her womb to the mission that he will have and that he came to seek and save that which was lost, you'll miss the significance of the incarnation. Or put it another way, you will miss the mission of Jesus if you divorce Christmas Day from Easter Sunday. You must keep them together. Understand without a baby, there is no man dangling on a cross for the sins of humanity for you. There is a straight line from the manger to Calvary, and he did it for you. And this was a man who was born that he might die. And why Christmas matters is because this is how the rescue mission got started. And it's this point where the angel's cluing us in to this mission of this baby that is coming that Matthew gives us a little sidebar, but it's no insignificant sidebar. He says this in verse 22. He goes, all this took place, all of it took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. It was no accident we were singing that 
that medley just a little while ago. It had a purpose. Emmanuel, God with us. And you see what Matthew has been doing to defend his claim that Jesus is the king. He's been telling us about his genealogy. He's tipped his hat in telling us who Joseph really is, son of David. And you notice in this passage, he's been prioritizing who? Joseph or Mary in this passage? Who gets the most press? It's Joseph, right? Read Luke's account, it's Mary. An angel appears to her too. But here it's Joseph. Why? Because Joseph has to adopt this son and claim him and name him as his own for him to have the legal right to have come from his bloodline. And not only that, Matthew goes even a step further. And he goes and he quotes from Isaiah 7.14. He backs up his claim of Jesus' identity by going to the prophets and saying, that back there, this is the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment. And it goes to Isaiah 7.14, and he quotes from it. Now, you should know this. Have you ever read the Bible, and you've wanted to do some cross-referencing work, and you've gone through the Old Testament, you're like, all right, I've tried reading Ezekiel like five times, and it's going to happen this time. And you start walking through it. You start seeing things in it. And then you realize that certain passages in Matthew are quoting from the Old Testament. And you go, that's interesting. I would have never gotten that unless Matthew pointed that out to me. Like, I would have never seen that on my own, that this was meant to be a fulfillment. Like, these passages are connected to one another. And here's what Bible scholars have said. Bible scholars have looked at prophecies in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, major prophets and minor prophets, and they have said that sometimes what you will happen when a prophet says, this is going to happen, is sometimes you can have this thing called a double fulfillment. In other words, the prophet could be saying, this will happen in the immediate future, and yet, unbeknownst even to the prophet, who is inspired by God, that same prophet could be pointing to something else that will happen later, double fulfillment. You understand? You with me? And so you can have not only something that happens in the immediate, but something that also happens in the future. And so the question is, is that what is happening in the Isaiah passage, where you have King Ahaz, and he is a wicked king being disobedient in Israel. And when Isaiah says, there is a wonder boy that is on the way. You see this in Isaiah 7 through 11. There's a wonder boy who is on the way. He's going to be born of a virgin, born of a woman who is a virgin who will conceive and have him. Is he talking about an immediate fulfillment and then a later fulfillment? And that's the question that much ink has been spent on. And so the answer is, Pay your money and take your pick. Not entirely sure about that one. Some have said that it's a single fulfillment pointing only to Christ, and some have said both. And someone might go, okay, Aaron, why did, so tell me, why did you take us through all of that? Why did we just do all that right there for the last three or four minutes? Is that just interesting trivia? Who really cares? The reason why I point that out is so that you have the right posture as you approach your Bible. There have been some people who have looked at the Old Testament and then the New Testament and have gone, man, I don't like this God of wrath here in the Old Testament. I like the God of love in the New Testament. I don't like all that crazy judgment stuff that happens here. I like the fuzzy Jesus over here, okay? You can get that. Or you get others who will say, the Bible is not internally consistent within itself. 
The New Testament contradicts the Old Testament. You can have things like that. If you have not come across people like that, you will eventually will, will come across that. You'll have some, even a well-known famous pastor who has said that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And I want to say, we need to unhitch yourself, unhitch ourselves from your preaching, brother, because that's, that's not accurate. Here's how we should understand Scripture. Two things. First, friend, the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. It's the same, it's the same God from, 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 from table of contents all the way to maps, all the way, okay? The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He is just as much the judge in the New Testament as he is compassionate in the Old Testament. You see how merciful he is towards rebellious Israel? Don't miss that. And you see that his wrath is poured out most clearly on the cross. If you have a problem with God's justice in the Old Testament, I got news for you. You won't like the book of Revelation very much because God really drops the hammer there. He is consistent in his nature. He is, as the theologians have said, immutable, unchanging, all the way through. And then secondly, understand that it is the same God who inspired Isaiah, who also inspired Matthew. It is one divine author all the way through. He is the Lord over the Bible, old and new. And so here's a tool I want to give you so you can, you can put in your tool belt when you walk to Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let the New Testament interpret the Old. The New Testament authors are closer to the time events than you and I are. They know their Bible better than you and I do. And they're, by the way, inspired by God himself. And they know what they're talking about. And so here's what Matthew has been building up all the way into this point. And here it is. If Jesus' family tree shows that he is the king, and now Matthew goes a step further, and he says he isn't just a human king. He's so much more than that. He is God himself. This is a mission that God could not send just one of his angels on. He had to go himself. I must come down. I must condescend. He leaves, and he is deserving of the title Emmanuel God with us. And so the question is, is this God, is this person a man or is this person God? The answer is yes, 100%. He is the God-man. Christological teaching teaches that he has two natures, fully God and fully man in the one person of Jesus Christ. That's the theology. But with S.M. Lockridge, let me ask the question, does it warm your heart? Does it warm your heart? Perhaps you haven't considered the implications, dear friend. Do you understand that when God looks at you and sees you and all the junk that you are going through, that he can look at you and say, I actually, I understand what you are going through. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. A few verses later it says, He can deal gently with the ignorance and the wayward since and we're talking about God here, since he himself is beset with weakness. Commenting on those passages, Dane Ortland, whose book I gave you last week, Gentle and Lowly, says this about Jesus. He's not like Zeus. He was a sinless man, not a sinless superman. He woke up with bedhead and he had pimples at 13, right? And here's a word for all of us who are dealing with addiction, all of us who are dealing with all forms of, of addiction this morning. Do you get these words that God 
in the flesh, Jesus Emmanuel was tempted in every respect as we are and yet without sin. Do you realize what he's saying? He's saying he gets, his, he gets your temptation better than you do because unlike you, he actually experienced the temptation to the fullness all the way through and he still said no because his yes in obeying his father as he came down to earth was even greater than the yes that you and I have to our own sin. And Ortland puts it this way, Jesus never laid down. He endured all our temptation and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. Only he truly knows the cost. Let that hit you this morning. Jesus understands what you're going through because he is Emmanuel. And so take heart. You who have fallen, you who have done it again, you who have messed up, you who have made excuses and said, I deserve it. Do you know what I give? Do, I, do you know what I give? I deserve a little bit of this. Jesus can look at you this morning. He who loves you more and hates, and hates your sin more than you do, who stood in your place and he can say he is with you in all of this. This is the one who is gentle and lowly and whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. And again with the words of S them Lockridge. This majestic one is the one you can't outlive and you can't live without him. That's my king. That should be your king as well if he isn't this morning. And again with Orland, our sinfulness runs so deep that a tepid measure of gentleness from Jesus would not be enough. But as deep as our sinfulness runs, ever deeper runs his gentleness towards us. By his spirit, Emmanuel has come. And by his spirit, he is in the room with you this morning. Whether you feel it or not, acknowledge it or not, it is a true reality in this moment that you are to be reminded of again and again. Emmanuel, God with you. And with me, despite our sinfulness. How's the story end? We're told. He took his wife, Joseph did, but he knew her not until she had given birth to his son. And he called his name Jesus. You know, it's how the pastor says he knew her not um, until she had given birth to a son. Uh, I only point this out for the sake of clarity. We love our Catholic friends. If you're here with us today, we're thankful that you're here. But you notice that against Catholic teaching, clearly the pastor says it insinuates that Mary didn't always stay a virgin. She was not a perpetual virgin as some teachings have. But instead, Jesus, did you know, ends up having other half-brothers and half-sisters. And they show up to some of his events. They say, what is he doing? Some of them. One of them even becomes a follower, an apostle. Who is it? James. Writes the book of James, and he serves as an apostle in the early church. This is Jesus, and this is how his family gets started. And so the man who was really a king was really so much more. He is God with us, and as you see through the rest of Matthew, the God-man comes and he proclaims a message. And the message of, of the gospel that we see in Matthew is this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what happens to the rest of Matthew. I want to give you just three words, and then we'll be done. In these last moments, I just want to show you how Christ's identity ought to change how you live. Let me give you three words. First one is this, incarnation. Believe this morning, friend, the incarnation. He isn't just a human king. He's the divine king. He is the son who was 
generated. He is the son of man who is generated by the spirit into his mother. And yet he is the eternal son who is eternally generated by his father in eternity past. And it all comes together at this moment. Believe the incarnation. And then secondly, as you believe it, understand Jesus's mission. Mission. Don't divorce the cross from the manger. Don't do it. Don't do it. You'll miss the purpose. But see the purpose that on this day of peace, the advent of peace, the greatest peace that God can give you is restoring the peace that did not exist when you were a child of wrath and yet he brought restoration between you and him through the blood of the lamb. And if that was his mission, it ought to change you and I so that we go and live as the hands and feet of Jesus. Just Friday night, I was meeting with the elders and the deacons and staff members of our church. We had, a, we had a great meal and celebration of last year over at Gigi's. And as we were there, we heard several who talked about what God has done in their lives. And one said, I would not have been, have been able to get through this last year unless it, was for, unless it was for the church. I don't know how you can not be a Christian and go through the difficulties of life without a church, without a church family. And I just want to look at every single one of us in here and say, as we look forward to 2023, how many more have yet to experience the blessings of the hands and feet of Jesus who do not yet know him and are lost and will spend an eternity without him? I say this regularly, but I want you to think of the blessing that comes from being a part of God's church. And if Christ has been sent on a mission to seek and save that which is lost, that does not mean you get to sit on the sidelines. Because as we look forward to next year, My prayer is that we would see baptisms like we've never seen them before. My prayer is that we would see restoration and people coming in with addiction and all others. And we would say, oh, you gotta clean yourself up before you get to church. Who gives a rip? Who cares? It's all about come just as you are and see the Savior and then seeing the Savior through the hands and feet of his people who are on mission for him. That's what I look forward to. And lastly, this, presence. Rest in his presence. Rest in knowing that as you go on this mission, Jesus is with you on that mission. And so the one who came to fulfill those words and is called Emmanuel after he has fulfilled his mission, has resurrected from the dead, has called us to make disciples, ends the gospel of Matthew with these words. Know this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the king. This is God. hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.